Okay, let's take our Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading a couple of verses here, the beginning of this chapter. We've uh, had, we had, we had a steady uh, dosage of the Sermon on the Mount early on this year, and then we had a significant break, and then we walked away from it. We had one sermon this fall, and then we're jumping in one more time here and uh, studying one more of these Beatitudes that Christ presents to us. Let's uh, begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down to the Beatitude that we're going to be examining this evening. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, up to this point, as we've studied the Beatitudes, um, it's been hopefully fairly clear that these occur in a very intentional order. Jesus has given these to us. He unfolds the character of a person who belongs in his kingdom, and he does it very intentionally. It describes here the character character of a man who possesses divine character, and then the following aspects of the sermon— after the Beatitudes, all the way chapters 5, 6, and 7, unfold for us what that character looks like. In fact, the first three Beatitudes show us that man must stand in relation to God as a sinner with three specific things. It's, it's he must look at himself as being poor in spirit, as being completely spiritually bankrupt. He must mourn over his sin and the sin in the world, and he is meek with humility. He is humble. And then the fourth beatitude gives us this wonderful promise that God's gift of righteousness is going to be given to the one who adheres to these first three beatitudes. There's a logical sequence here in all of this. So verses, um, pardon me, uh, uh, the first four here describe man's need and the rest reveal his character. So here we are in between verses, uh, pardon me, uh, beatitude four and five, and we're at a turning point in which five, six, and seven, these beatitudes are more concerned with a Christian's character as a result of the beatitudes that have come before. In other words, the first four deal entirely with inner principles of the heart and how we see ourselves before God. The last four are outward manifestations of those attitudes. So Jesus here begins at this turning point in his delivery of the Beatitudes, and he looks at his disciples and to those who can hear, and he says, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are characterized, who are in my kingdom, and are characterized by mercy. And their reward is that they shall receive mercy. Now, a statement like this from Christ should cause us to immediately pause and examine our own character and ask ourselves, do I demonstrate, do I show, do I exemplify mercy? It's a pretty searching question. 
It should be. In fact, at the very close, we're going to see that this, like all the other Beatitudes, is simply a test of authenticity. We're, we're being put to the test as we examine ourselves with the words of Jesus of, is this true of me? Am I truly characterized as a, someone who belongs as a kingdom citizen? So my encouragement to you as we walk through this is don't, in your hearts and in your minds, don't rush past the fact that you actually have shown mercy once or twice in your life, but are, is, does it permeate you? Is this something that someone could hang this on you, your life, and say, this is a quality they possess, mercy? Now, in pursuing an understanding of this beatitude, when Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful, it's imperative that we come to a, a, a pretty good understanding of the meaning of the word merciful. Now, with any word that we try to understand, there's going to be negative implications, right? A positive understanding and then a negative misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. So we're going to look at both. Here with mercy, there's, there's a significant amount of confusion, both in, both in first century day and also in our day, on what mercy actually means. Transport yourself to first century day when Jesus is standing up looking at these people, and he's telling them this phrase, blessed are those who are merciful. In his day, there was plenty of confusion in the culture surrounding him about the idea and the characterizing of mercy. Think about the people who are leading the people Jesus is talking to. Scribes, Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders who it really in no way are inclined to show mercy. Why? Because these are men that are characterized as proud, self-righteous, judgmental men who by the nature of being consumed with themselves have no desire for mercy. So as people look around and they see, are there any examples of mercy? There's mass confusion of what does that look like? Jesus presents to them and says, you must be merciful. And to many listening that day, if you were to place mercy on a list of virtues, it might have been the last and perhaps it wouldn't have been listed as a virtue at all. Again, it sounds like that would fit right in with our culture today. Would you agree with that? Where mercy is really not something that's heralded. It's not, it's not exalted. It's not a quality that people say, man, you've got to have more of this. In fact, the practice of compassion has been very much lost on our culture. There's not that aspect at all. So let, let's look at three things very quickly that mercy is not, okay? And hopefully by seeing what it is not, it'll become abundantly clear from Scripture what mercy truly looks like. Number one, to be merciful does not mean to be easygoing. To be merciful does not mean that we should just be easygoing. There are many today that think that mercy and being categorized by mercy means that you're laid back or you're relaxed, right? Or, or, or to not see things. Or if we do see them, we, we pretend that we don't see them. We all, have, we all had that growing up. We all had that uncle who was the cool uncle, because you could go and do things with him that you could not do at home, right? Anybody have that family member that was just laid back, chill, and he, he promised he wouldn't tell mom and dad, right? You, someone's giggling. I know you know what I'm talking about, right? 
It's that idea of that lenient teacher or that lenient parent who is just going to look away. It's not going to be that important. Or it's not, they're gonna, not going to raise a flag too quickly. Now, my friends, that's, that's a real danger. Because in a culture like ours where so many lack a moral compass or direction or spiritual discipline or a sense of justice or righteousness, to turn the eye or, or become lenient on these matters is not a, a passive thing. It's a dangerous thing. We, in fact, live in a culture that is so far from the word of God. It's not based on the truth of God. And the idea today is that mankind, man, has the freedom to do whatever he wants. He's free-minded. He's free to do what he wants. Many people think, therefore, that a merciful person is someone who sees what's going on and turns away. Someone who smiles at sin and unrighteousness and just turns a blind eye. In fact, they expect merciful people to say, why does it matter? I can't do anything about it anyway. Let's just go on with our life. You ever felt that way before? This kind of mercy is simply, it's, it's, a, it's someone who's weak. It's, it's someone who may be easygoing in their temperament or easy to get along with, but definitely not interested or concerned with righteousness and justice. Mercy has nothing to do with being easygoing. Now, why do we say this? Well, because it's important to note here, like with all the other Beatitudes that have come before, mercy cannot be interpreted in terms of natural disposition. What I mean by this, it would be wrong of us to assume that some people are born with a natural bent or disposition to have Christian character more than others. If we start thinking on this basis, the Beatitudes, they, we're going to arrive at a conclusion that's frankly very unfair. Why? Well, look around you. Do, you. do you see anybody around you who's maybe naturally a little bit better? Or they're, they're, they're bent, or they're a little bit more like these Beatitudes naturally than you? Yeah, probably, Right? But that's not a fair standard to go by. Why? Because some people are born this way. That some people are not. A person who's born with a more easygoing temperament is going to have a greater advantage over someone who's not. You could say, if you just tick down through these Beatitudes, you could say that about all of these Beatitudes. Boy, I think I'm a little bit better at this just naturally than others. And oh, she or he is better at this just naturally than others. But to believe this would be to deny the whole of biblical teaching. My friends, the gospel, this is not a gospel for a certain temperament. Nobody has an advantage over anybody else when it comes face to face with God. We must be careful to interpret any of these beatitudes and not base them on natural tendencies. All of these aspects, all of these characteristics are the work of the Spirit in our lives. These qualities are nothing short of a gift from God himself. So the first thing, it has nothing to do with being easygoing. Second, being merciful doesn't mean you give something when you get something. You're, You're willing to give once you receive. It's the same way the audience then and the same way we think about love. You love those who love you and you show mercy to those who show mercy to you. 
as I'm dealt mercy from others, I'll hand out some mercy to them as well. If you've ever um, had the opportunity to go to an open air market or traded goods with someone or bartered for a price, you've, you've stood there and you've kind of argued for price. Anybody ever done that before in another culture perhaps? Um, you stand there and you go, okay, I will give you this for this and we'll exchange. And I had this experience, <clears throat> I watched my dad do it a lot growing up, but I personally had the experience several years ago when I traveled to Pakistan and on our very last day, we're all like, we want to get a, a cricket bat, one of those tall, big looking things that I'm not even sure how to swing those cricket bats, but we're going to take one back and it's going to be cool in my office and I actually don't even know where it is now, but I got one. And we're standing there at around 10 o'clock at night. Our flight leaves at midnight, and we're in this city. And there are people everywhere. And our, our guide, a pastor who's with us, takes us into this shop. And he goes, I know the shop. They're going to deal with us in a fair way. And I was like, oh, but wait a minute. There are shops that won't deal with us in a fair way? Is that what you're saying? And we stand there. And I'm with a friend of mine who's six foot six, and his son, who's pretty tall. And we're all these tall white boys in in this Pakistani culture and their eyes get this big as soon as we walk in the store and their eyes are going dollar, dollars, 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 right? And my pastor friend says, they want cricket bats. And he says, oh, we have a great deal for you. You come over here and we look at these and we're all examining. And he said, how much? And we, you know, he said, that's the price. And we're like, oh, we don't have that much. We're not going to do it. And my Our pastor friend said, too much. And I expected fully at that point to turn around and walk away. Walk out of the store, find another place, better price. My pastor friend stood still and didn't move. I'm standing there, it got awkward. 10 seconds went by, 30 seconds went by, 45 seconds went by. It felt like an eternity was going on and on. And what I didn't realize was happening is we were at a standoff. We weren't going to budge until those men in the store were willing to meet us at the price that we were going to pay. The idea here was, you give us what we want, and we'll give you what you want. You give us the price, and you get to have the money that you wanted. Jesus takes that kind of thinking that says, once once you give me something, right? you give me something, uh, um, excuse me, uh, we'll, I'll give you once you get, I'm, I'm getting something from you. Jesus totally destroys that thinking later on here in chapter 5, verse 43 through 47. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Who told them that? The same men who are leaving them a terrible example of what mercy looks like, the Pharisees. The men were twisting the scriptures to say one thing because they want it to benefit themselves. He says, you've heard it said this way, but he said, it's not that way. I reject that. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What Jesus is saying is this, you initiate. You close the gap between you and the person that you're expecting something from. Don't don't wait for it. You extend mercy first. Don't wait for someone else to make the move. In fact, Jesus says it's the total opposite way around. Give mercy, expecting nothing in return. Don't stand there going, 
I'm waiting for you to infuse some kindness and compassion into my life so that I feel like investing something into you. So second mercy has nothing to do with giving something when you get something. Third, this is the selfish, humanistic view. It's that being merciful to those around us will cause them to be merciful to us. How is this different from the second one? Well, mercy given will mean mercy received. If I'm merciful to you, then you'll be merciful to me. Cause and effect. It's like that toddler who has one toy in his hand, but he sees the toddler with the toy that he now wants, and he says, they, they do this exchange, he said, I've got, you've got what I want, and I will take that, and I'll give you this. So he, what does he do? He extends his kindness while extending his other hand saying, hand it over, right? It's, it's, it's not this, this aspect of, hey, I'm going to, with every bit of kindness in my heart, expecting nothing in return, give over to you something that you want. It's an extending, fully expecting something in return. What's the motivation here? Well, for people who believe that this is mercy, that it's how you show mercy, this is only an act of kindness that's in its own self-interest. What do I get out of this act of kindness? What's in it for me? Again, this is not the mercy Jesus is talking about. Why do you think there would be so much confusion or the necessity, perhaps, for Jesus to look at a group of people and say, you want to know what it looks like to be part of my kingdom? You want to know what a kingdom citizen looks like? They're merciful people. Why? Well, think back in the culture. Mercy was such a uh, look-down-upon characteristic in the first century that one popular Roman philosopher said, mercy is the disease of the soul. To them, it was a supreme sign of weakness. It was a sign that you didn't have it in you. You didn't have what it took to be a real man and definitely not a real Roman. Romans glorified manly courage, strict justice, firm discipline, and above all, absolute power. They looked down on mercy because in their eyes, mercy to them was weakness. And weakness was to be despised above all. And it's into this culture, this way of thinking and living, that Jesus declares to them, blessed are the merciful. He said, you may not see it exemplified around you well at all, but he said, if, you were, if you're part of my kingdom, you'll be merciful. You, you won't despise it. You won't see it as a weakness. So we've seen the misinterpretation, what it doesn't mean to be merciful. And we could probably very easily take those qualities and implement them uh, into our lives, but let's, let's flip it on its head. What does it mean then to be merciful? What is Jesus getting at here? Well, the, the basic Greek, Greek word translated merciful here is the idea to give help to the wretched and to relieve the miserable. In other words, the essential thought here is that mercy gives attention to those who are in misery. Mercy gives attention to those who are in misery. It's to give comfort to those who are afflicted. It's to rescue the helpless. 
Jesus isn't speaking about a detached, powerless feeling or sentiment. He's not speaking about a false pity, an insincere pity or compassion, someone who just wants to appear virtuous. No, what Jesus is referring to here by using this word, he's saying it's a genuine, compassionate expression of sympathy. Someone who's merciful is someone who is selfless in their concern and their expression is represented in selfless deeds. They do selflessly as they are expressing the compassion that they have in their hearts. What Jesus is saying is this. The people in my kingdom are not takers, but they're givers. They're not pretending helpers, but they're practical helpers. They're not condemners, but mercy givers. Now, in all of my studying here on this beatitude, I came across multiple times the importance of making the distinction between two characteristics that sometimes get uh, melted together, grace and mercy. And it's, it's important here that we make a distinction between these two because I, I think you understand that once you understand grace well and once you understand mercy well, you see how combined the, the outworking of them together is what Jesus is talking about here. What is grace? Well, grace here in, this, in, in our understanding, grace is shown to undeserving people. The undeserving party is the one whom grace is shown to. Mercy is compassion to the miserable. Notice the differences here. Grace is love when love is undeserved. Mercy is love reaching out to helpless. It's that idea of the miserable, the helpless, the ones who can't, that, that are down low. In other words, mercy is grace in action. Mercy is grace in action. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones explains the difference here between the two, mercy and grace. He says, grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. In other words, while grace looks down on sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. So, mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to help relieve the suffering. Mercy means a sense of compassion. In addition to that, it's a desire to help walk into someone's life and relieve them of the pain, the suffering, the helplessness of the consequences of sin. That's mercy. Mercy has more to do with the pain, the misery, the loss, the distress, all the consequences of sin. Grace, on the other hand, deals with the sin itself. Mercy is going to deal with the symptoms. Grace is going to deal with the, with the, with the cause, the beginning of it. Mercy is going to offer relief from punishment, while grace will offer pardon for the sin itself. This is essentially what the meaning of mercy here is. It's pity, it's compassion, plus action. It's, it's, it's not this empty feeling that, man, I, I, might, I want to do this, but it remains actionless. Jesus is saying that a kingdom citizen recognizes, sees the misery of men, the consequence of sin all around them, and they have a great desire to help relieve that. That's mercy. 
It's mercy that's grace in action. So let's keep building on this concept here of mercy being grace in action. How then do we take a better understanding of this concept that mercy is grace in action and we practice that? What does it look like then practically? There are two things. Two things that I'd like to point out to you tonight. The first thing is this. One of the most obvious ways that we can show mercy, grace in action to people is by physical deeds, physical actions. We'll call this one compassion in action. Compassion in action. You and I, we should be very careful to never imagine ourselves as truly merciful people just because we feel compassionate. We feel compassionate towards someone in their distress or in their misery. We look at it and we feel welling up inside us this feeling of pity. You ever, you ever been um, sitting on your couch watching the TV aimlessly and a commercial pops up and it's the very first picture of that commercial is a dog who has two legs and one eye. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And is limping around and this wonderful music that just tears at your soul begins to play and then... For just 50 cents a day, you can save this dog and, you know, or whatever it might be. I'm not telling you you shouldn't save or you should save dogs, but what are they going for? They want you to feel really badly about this. What do you do? You watch them and you go, oh, man, that poor dog. And the next commercial, right? Just move right along with life. It's the idea here where you, you see something it's miserable. You see something that is experiencing all of the terrible consequences of sin by pain, by loss, whatever it might be, by their own sin, and you say, man, that's terrible. Okay, what's next? J- Jesus does not want us to feel compassionate and stop. No, the, the compassion, the mercy that we are to extend to others is always going to be in conjunction with seeing the need and doing something about it. Mercy means active goodwill. True mercy demands action. We, we can't be described as, excuse me, we can describe this as an inward sympathy, but with very clear outward actions. When we see sorrow, when we see suffering, we feel it, but we then do. Now, we don't have to think very long for a biblical example or illustration of this. Possibly the best one would be in Luke chapter 10, where the Good Samaritan is the illustration, the story that Jesus tells in response to a lawyer who comes to him and he says, Jesus... Tell me how I know that I'm, I belong to your kingdom. Like, how, how do I know that I'm doing and fulfilling the law and doing the right thing? And Jesus looks at him and he says, okay, let me tell you a story. There was this man who on his journey comes upon another man who's lying in a ditch, half dead after being beaten and robbed by a group of men. But before this good Samaritan had come by, two people that we assume by the nature of their role in society would have been the ones to step in and do something about it, simply saw and passed along. A Levite 
a priest. They come by this man and they look at him and then what do they do? They go to the opposite side of the road and pass by. Now they may have felt compassion in their heart, but they did nothing about it, Jesus tells us. And yet, of all people, a Samaritan. Samaritan comes down the road and he sees this man. He crosses over the road. He takes this man. He dresses his wounds. He picks him up. He carries him into the the local town and he addresses his needs, and he, he makes full provision for this man. After Jesus tells a story, he looks at the lawyer, who no doubt is trying to appease his conscience, trying to, to, trying to figure out a way to, to feel better about himself. And Jesus looks at him, he asks this question, he says, which of these three, the Levite, the Good Samaritan, or the priest, which of these three do you think proved, that's the key word here, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Who proved it, Jesus says. The lawyer looked at him and said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The point that Jesus is making here is that you can see a need, you can have pity, and still lack mercy. You can be very aware, keenly in tune with the pain, the sorrow, the distress all around you, and even feel a little bit of welling up inside you and then just move on. Mercy does not mean a feeling of sympathy. It means having a great desire to help, a striving to do something to relieve that situation. This is compassion in action. It's grace, excuse me, it's mercy, which is grace in action. Now, as I was thinking through this, studying through this, I began to think back in my life, people who have demonstrated mercy in this way by being compassionate in their deeds, compassionate in their actions, and I went back to a couple of people that I've met in the last few weeks, but then some that I've heard about what they do. We, in our church, we support uh, many missionaries, and just the ones that I started to list out, we have at least three, four missionaries who part of the main DNA of their ministry that God has called them to is this. It's mercy in action. They're, compa- they're showing the compassion of Christ by good deeds, by supplying needs of people who are in distress and suffering. Laverne Woe, who was here just a couple months ago, who is from the country of Zimbabwe, and one of her main ways of infiltrating the gospel into people's lives is by quite literally supplying physical needs to people. Most of the money that is, that is sent to her from her supporting churches, she uses to pay pastors who are, who are leading these churches that she's helped support, or help plant, that she and her husband did, and then quite literally put food on the table in all of these little communities where these churches are at. She will go with the money she has, will go to the market, and will put together a basic basket of needs that will last a family a month. And then when the next month comes, the very next things happen. Very next, uh, the, the very same thing happens, where she sees extending mercy as doing these things for them opening wide the gospel opportunity. Tico and Lena and Magamelian, they came here a couple weeks ago from Eastern Europe to where they are literally providing 
and infiltrating into all over parts of Eastern Europe, providing for very needy people. If it didn't move you watching what they had been doing by God's, by God's grace, it was an incredible thing to see what this man and his wife and a lot of the supporting churches that they have and planted are doing. Dr. Ann Livingston, who is soon to retire, has spent her entire lifetime ministering to very needy, poor people in the country of Haiti to where she meets their needs physically and also provide an opportunity to reach them with the gospel. Good friends of ours, Buddy and Laurent Fitzgerald, who are in the jungles of, of Peru, right on the Amazon, in the Amazon, the border with Brazil and with Bolivia, to where in their church planting efforts, there is a lot of opportunity to provide physically for the needs of the people all around them. My friends, true mercy demands action from us. Mercy means active care. Mercy will always be accompanied by deeds. So my encouragement to us is don't let our compassion, don't let our pity fall short of being truly merciful. The second way that as we examine Scripture and we see mercy personified and, and, and described for us in the Scriptures, we see that it's not just compassion and action. A demonstration of mercy is always going to be forgiveness, a willingness to forgive. To be merciful describes someone who forgives and pardons someone else who's in the wrong. Let's illustrate it this way. Let's say you find yourself in a position of having power over someone who sinned against you. They're quite literally at your mercy in that moment. You have now before you an opportunity. The way you, the way you know whether or not you are merciful is to consider how you feel towards that person in that moment. Are you saying... I now have the opportunity to exercise my right. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to exercise the full sense of the justice that I deserve. The people have sinned against me. Here's my opportunity. Of course, we know that mercy is the very opposite of this. If there is a vindictive spirit, a spirit that says, I'm going to hold this against them, an unwillingness to forgive... That should be a pause in our hearts when it comes to this beatitude that Jesus says should be true about us. If we are truly merciful, we are always forgiving. It's never one without the other. Again, if, if we're to run to the scripture to see an example of this, we don't have to go very far in the life of Joseph to understand what it looks like to be treated unkindly, with great disdain and extend mercy. His brothers seek to kill him, but instead make a profit by selling him off. And, and Joseph experiences all of the, he, the fallout, the outcome of being sent away from home and into a land that he doesn't belong in. And time after time being forgotten and abandoned and not knowing if he'd ever see his family again. And then we come to the close of the story where his brothers, by God's kindness and God's sovereignty, come before him, and he's there, and they again are quite literally at what? His mercy. 
Here's the second most powerful man in the world who's been wronged by these men and by a snap of his finger could have shown him or shown them exactly what justice was. And yet the quality that Jesus is referring to here, a merciful person who belongs and is characterized as belonging as, as part of his kingdom, is someone like Joseph who sees those men and forgives them. Notice all three aspects here that Joseph does. He, he actually has compassion on them and pity. Well, what does he do in the story? He sees them and immediately begins to weep. There's this overwhelming sense of compassion. It wasn't a hardness of heart of, you did this. I've been dwelling on this for decades. Now it's my turn. He had that feeling of compassion. He had that feeling of pity for these men. But did he stop there? No. He had compassionate actions. He then goes the distance and he meets their needs. He says, what do you need? He said, I'm going to fulfill your needs, bring everybody back. I'm going to put you in the best spot in all the land. I'm going to make you, everything's going to be just fine. Nobody's going to go hungry. I'll take care of you, dad, everybody else. And then he closes out his exchange with his brothers by telling them that he's not only, he has a pity for them, and he's going to take care of their needs, but he realizes that he must Above all, forgive them. He says, you intended for this for my demise. God had a bigger plan. He said, God, God knew all along. He said, and I, I, we, we know by the character of Joseph that he trusted God and that he knew God was in control. And he looks at his brothers and he chooses, instead of lowering the hammer on them, he chooses then to restore them back into his favor. He extends forgiveness to the ones who hurt and did the most to him. My friends, the question then for us is, are we capable of doing this as well? Should we? Right? True forgiveness is a rare gem. It's a, it's a rare commodity, but it must be true of a Christian. Because if you're a believer, regardless of the wrong someone's done to you, you can by grace, forgive. You must forgive. Let me put it this way. For the sake of your soul, you must forgive. Why that serious? Why for the sake of your soul must you forgive? Well, don't lose sight of where we're at here in Matthew 5. When we first, way back in January, when I, when I presented to you, I said, one of the main reasons, there are two main reasons why, why Jesus presents these to us. There are two um, tests Two things that are going to help determine in us. The first one is this. We're given the Beatitudes because our faith is going to be proven as truly authentic if these Beatitudes are true about us. If we look through this list and we say, I'm not perfect, but it's true of me. I'm not always doing this, but I can say I'm, true, I'm doing my best by God's grace. It is a test of true authenticity. But second, it's also a, a test of a truly healthy spiritual life. It's a test of whether you belong as a kingdom citizen and you're developing your character. When you read through these things, you should say, I belong in the kingdom and I'm developing in this area. So why should I say, for the sake of your soul, you must forgive? Because Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. And if you're not merciful, 
in the aspect of being willing to forgive, that is a soul-searching question. That, that, is, that is, in a sense, you putting your faith to the test. If part of your character is that you are unwilling to forgive. A true test of authenticity and a test to whether or not we possess the mercy of God at all in our lives. So the two practical ways in which we demonstrate that we possess mercy is by compassion and action. We get out there, we see, and we do. And when we're wronged against, when someone sins against us, we are very quick to forgive. Compassion and action and forgiveness. But notice down in verse 7 what the result is. Jesus has very clearly told us that this is something that should be true about you. We've gained an understanding of what it's not in Scripture and what it very clearly is. What's the result, though? There's this, perhaps confusing for some, but very rewarding phrase that Jesus gives. He says, for they shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy. Is Jesus saying here that if we are merciful, then God will be merciful to us in a salvific way? In other words, can we earn God's mercy by doing the right thing? Is Jesus looking at his disciples and those who can hear, and he's saying, blessed are the merciful, go out there and be this, and God will then give you his mercy. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, in order to answer that question, let's examine here the same words that it, the same words have been used all along. It's the word here, the emphatic pronoun, autos, the word they. Jesus says that they and only they, only those who are merciful qualify for mercy. David spoke about this in, in Samuel chapter 22 when he's saying to the Lord, he said, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. The opposite side of the coin, James in chapter 2 says, for judgment without mercy to the one who has, excuse me, for judgment is without mercy for the one who has shown no mercy. And then at the close of chapter 6, when Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer, he looks to his disciples and he further explains this. He says, for if you forgive other their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive them their trespasses, neither will your uh, father forgive your trespasses. Again, the emphatic truth here is that God will respond with chastening for the unforgiving disciple, but mercy for the forgiving disciple. He, if you are unforgiving, if you aren't compassionate in your deeds, there will be no mercy for you. But that still doesn't answer our question. Are we doing mercy so that God will then show his mercy and salvation to us? Well, if we are rightly interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we know that this passage, Matthew 5, and all the other ones I just read, are in no way saying that mercy gains us salvation. Why? Well, we know that we do nothing to earn our salvation. We don't earn salvation by being merciful. 
We must be saved by God's mercy before we can truly be merciful. It's like the, uh, it's, it's what some people refer to as God's cycle of mercy. He in Christ showed us great mercy by giving us everything we need in Christ. We in response and obedience extend mercy to others. And as we do so, guess what our reward is? Continued mercy from God. We don't start the cycle by saying, okay, God, I'm going to be merciful. Now you can extend to me your saving grace. No, we do nothing to earn it. In fact, not a lifetime of merciful deeds or good works will get us there. God doesn't give merit, excuse me, give mercy for merit. He gives mercy in grace, not because it's earned, but because it's needed. There are two reasons why I say this. First, if we were to be judged strictly on how we show mercy, if, if a judgment would come down on us, whether we belong in the kingdom or not, based on our mercy, would anybody get in? Would anybody be looked at and said, hey, you did enough mercy. You, you, you were merciful, compassionate in action enough, and you forgave enough, come on in. None of us would be forgiven. None of us would see heaven. And if we interpret this in a, in, a, in a strictly legal manner, forgiveness for us is totally impossible. The second reason is this. If we believe that God is giving us saving grace because we're merciful to others, then we need to take every passage in Scripture that deals with the doctrine of grace and we cancel it. We, we never again get to say phrases like, we're saved by grace through faith, or while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, or when we were enemies, we were reconciled to go. All of them have to go. All of them are nonsense and not true, if that's how we look at this interpretation. No, we, seeing Scripture with Scripture, we realize that what Jesus is saying here is really this, that I'm only truly forgiven as I'm truly repentant. And I'm only truly repentant because I realize I deserve nothing but punishment. Beatitude 1, 2, 3, and 4. And when I realize my condition, my response then, after being shown God's grace, shown his mercy, is that then in obedience, adopt this beatitude and all the ones that follow. Only as I'm forgiven is it entirely possible to then forgive others? My friend, that's it. But when, when we, in our, we realize that we've been shown a great mercy from God out of necessity, out of obedience, we then forgive those who sin against us. We pour out acts of mercy after being shown God's great mercy. So what, what do we take away from a beatitude, a charge on our character in which Jesus demands of us. He says, if you claim to belong to my kingdom, this must be true about you. You must be merciful. Well, it demands in us that we are doing. That we have this sense of compassion and pity but we don't fall short, we don't stop short, but we continue on. We, we, we lean into the opportunities and the distress and the hurt in people's lives as a consequence of sin, and we grant mercy to them in action. But then we also forgive. 
We are continuously forgiving, never holding a grudge, always willing to extend the same forgiveness that was extended to us. This is how we measure up to this standard. This is how we demonstrate that God's mercy has been shown to us and we're showing to others. The reward then is God's ongoing, continuous mercy to us. He will continue to reward our obedience. By God's grace, we will adopt. We'll we'll go into the next one uh, hopefully soon, but we conclude here with this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. By God's grace, may we do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to realize that as kingdom citizens, we should be living in, walking in this very truth, that we are merciful as you have been merciful to us. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hope you have a good week. You're dismissed.